Flourishing Education, the podcast where I share the powerful, imperfectly perfect conversations with disruptors of the education system in the UK and beyond. I would really like to encourage you to take a listen and see what's possible as I ask the question, how can we change the way we educate and parent our children and young people so that they can truly become flourishing, curious, lifelong learners and young adults. I hope you enjoy these episodes as much as I've enjoyed recording them and creating them. Please do not hesitate to connect with me on LinkedIn, Fabian Vales, and or, and or on Twitter at FlourishingHG. And please let me know what's your favourite episode or favourite part of the podcast. I look forward to hearing from you and in the meantime I truly hope you are thriving and flourishing. Wishing you a fabulous day wherever you are in the world. Hello and welcome to another powerful and perfectly perfect conversation for the Flourishing Education podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking to Tim Klein, who's an educator, a writer, a researcher, and the co-founder of How to uh, to Navigate Life. Very warm welcome to this podcast, Tim. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. So for the listeners, as usual, um, I have had a conversation with Tim previously, um, and there is so much synergy between our work that I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. So um, I'm delighted to have you here. And to start with, Tim, would you share a bit about you, where you're based? And, you know, I've obviously introduced you, but your journey thus far, I think that'd be quite useful. Yeah. So right now I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, where I am. I teach at Boston College, and then I'm doing research in my co-author, Dr. Belling's uh, lab called The Purpose Lab, where we're doing research on purpose. And, um, you know, my background is in, I'm a clinical therapist by background, so licensed clinical social worker. Um, and then before that, you know, after I became licensed clinical social worker, I was the outreach director for this national youth development nonprofit called Summer Search that works with low-income first-gen students. I've been a school counselor. I've worked at Stanford University helping launch an SEL um, startup. And so I, I've done a lot of things. It's all in education. But the, the, the narrative thread that I think kind of connects all of these together is I really focus on helping people through inflection points in their lives. So helping people, those big transition moments, whether it's going into high school, high school to college, college into career, you know, really trying to provide guidance and support to people in navigating these really critical moments. Okay, wonderful. And yeah, so like period of change and transition, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because to me, so, so my background is in is in linguistics and cultural agility and what I noticed eight years ago when I started my research is that it was almost like students arriving at university were experiencing what we know in in terms of cultural agility as a culture shock so you know this sort of like u curve yeah um, so how does that resonate with with yeah. your, your work and and your your framework yeah, and, it, and it, it completely does resonate because I've done a lot of work in K-12 education, but I've also done a lot of work in university with students. So I've seen both sides of that coin. And one thing that I think is a huge issue is that um, in K-12 education, I use this metaphor of it's this cafeteria style where it's like you go in and you have very limited options on what you can study and learn about. You can, you know, you can choose between maybe an accelerated math versus the standard level math, but there's not a lot of option and choice about what that educational pathway looks like. So everyone is going through the exact same experience with a little bit of leeway. And and we're telling all of these students in high school exactly what to do, right? Like it's very much a path where it's like, you know, there's a very, very specific definition of success there. Students play this game really, really well, right? And then they get into these highly rejective colleges and then they get to university and it turns into this all-you-can-eat buffet. There's this embarrassment of riches where they can, at least in the United States, I know it's a little bit more structured in the UK with some of it, but 
They have unlimited options in what they can study, the extracurriculars, everything is this unlimited option. And what we've noticed is we've never taught students how to make meaningful decisions. We've never taught them how to understand what, what interests them to continue the food metaphor, like what type of food they like or they dislike. And so, yeah, they have this all you can eat buffet. They have no idea how to utilize it. And I, does that resonate with your experience as well? Or I'm curious how it lands with you. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, so uh, yes, absolutely. So, so that the, first of all, I think the, that control thing. So the fact that we, to me, it's like, we, we tell our young people where to go, what to do when, like, you know, it's sort of completely controlled. Um, and then we, I often joke and sort of say it's almost like we we put our kids in this room uh, and overprotect them and then we open the door age 18 and go off you go and it's like mm -hmm. they just don't know how to navigate and I don't know whether that's the same in, for you in the US but for for us in when I worked in in the big university in the end we stopped using words like you know we used to say welcome to the world of critical independent thinking and we, we couldn't say that because you could see their their brain just going like what does it mean and I and and feeling really overwhelmed so yeah 100 percent um so how do we help our children and you know and our young people understand first of all perhaps what foods they're not so are not so good for them yeah so there's also like foods they like or don't like or you know um you know how do we support them what's the point? yeah well I think one way to amplify the difference is you have some students let's just focus on like high performing you know I work mostly with low-income first gen a lot of at opportunity students but a lot of times at university you'll have two students coming in they're both working incredibly incredibly hard you know, they're doing everything right. They're taking as many classes as they can. They're maximizing everything they can do. And so on paper, they're doing everything exactly the same. You can't tell the difference. Their subjective experience, though, can be very, very different, where you have one student who is just so stressed out all the time. Any little problem turns into a massive crisis. You know, they just crumble at any face of adversity. You have other students who seem to be having so much on their plates. They're doing everything. They have a lot of challenges but they're like more present, they're more engaged, you know, they're enjoying the process more. And so what's the difference between those two students? And we found from, our, from my own lived experience and the research is that we really found that it's a sense of purpose in students. And so when students have a sense of purpose for why they're in education, their underlying intrinsic motivations for being there, that informs their ability to navigate higher education, informs the decisions that they're making, informs the relationships with their peers. So our focus, to me, I was this direct practitioner trying to understand what was the difference between some students who were thriving versus there weren't. And I found my co-author, Dr. Bell Yang, who just happened to be doing a research study on my high school, she's an expert on youth purpose. And so when I found out about the research on purpose, that was a light bulb moment for me because I realized the differentiator, that navigation tool that they were using was the sense of purpose. Amazing. And so again, like loads of similarity because uh, what I noticed is that when I started my research eight years ago, is that some students, like you described, were having a really horrendous time, like really one thing after the other, they seemed to be flourishing or thriving despite struggles mm -hmm. and others would be completely flawed. Um, and in my research, just so like the, the there's been several sort of uh, phases to the research. The, the second stage where I interviewed uh, 13 students, um, those who were uh, on paper uh, flourishing the most were actually students who from the age of eight had wanted to be doctors. So and they were then studying medicine at university. So that fits in so well with what with what you're you're describing, right? Um, exactly. So tell us why meaning that why is so important, and it sort of enable seems to enable us to uh, 
to, to cope with more challenges than if we don't know what our why is and why we're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think on a practical standpoint, there's like a couple of reasons that it does, but, um, you know, just to make this experience near for people, like a sense of purpose is this underlying reason we do what we do. And the more sense of purpose we have, the more resilient we are. So it's, you know, if you're running, I don't know, I'm a runner. I like to run a lot as a way to mental health. And you start running and on every good run, your legs start to hurt, your lungs start to hurt. Every part of your body, you're getting this signal from the physical sensation being like your body is saying, whoa, like you're taxing us here, slow down, stop doing what you're doing. And the message they send to try to get us to stop is is pain, right? And so anytime we're met with adversity or challenge, one of the first questions we ask ourselves is, why am I doing this? Or why don't I just stop, right? We ask ourselves that question. And the answer to that question, when we say, well, I'm not going to stop because blank, I'm going to keep going because blank, that's purpose, right? And so when we have an answer to the question of these, these students in, when they're in university and they're studying to be a doctor, and that's an incredibly long, laborious, bureaucratically messy scenario, there's a million times when they're like, I just want to quit right now. I don't want to keep going. This is so stressful. And they ask themselves, why am I going to keep going? Purposeful students have a very compelling, personally meaningful answer that they tell themselves that reconnects them to why they were there in the first place. And the students who are into, uh, let's say, just becoming a doctor for external reasons, if it's for the wealth, the status, the prestige, or the power, that's not a good enough reason to keep going to fight through the pain. And that's why we see them, that's why we see them struggling because not only are they struggling, but that struggle feels meaningless to them because they don't actually know why they're putting them through the pain. So I see you nodding there and I know, how does that resonate with your work and your research? Yeah, 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 yes, yes, yes. And so again, like the other thing that I would love us to discuss. So first of all, uh, how in your work, how do you measure that purpose sort of meaning? Do you have a scale or do you have a framework for, to, to measure? Yeah, so there are scales out there. There's a couple different scales. There's like inventories. Kendall, Con- Kendall Cotton Bronk has a really good purpose in life inventory. Bell's research actually has been more in grounded theory. So she'll go out and she'll research people. She's actually done a lot of research with low-income first-gen students, done grounded mixed method research studies, and found these universal elements of purpose that people have that like instill purpose in them, which I can go into in a bit. But um that's it. But it basically, you know, we are currently de- developing some measures around how to quantify it. But essentially, it can be pretty simple, actually. Like we're using the definition of purpose that's slightly modified from Dr. Bill Damon's original definition of youth purpose out of the Stanford uh, University Center on Alice and Research. It's just living a life that's personally meaningful and benefits the world beyond the self. That is really, and so you can make that more content specific by saying, you know, okay, you want to be a doctor? Is being Does that feel personally meaningful to you? You know, and then do you feel like by becoming a doctor, you can contribute to the world beyond the self and how? And so if, it's really asking students that. And then if, and they're, if they're saying yes, that's the measure of purpose that we're using essentially. Mm, amazing. And so how does intrinsic motivation fit in within that in terms of because you mentioned intrinsic extrinsic motivation so perhaps for our listeners so to me no problem I I completely get what you're talking about yeah but maybe some of our listeners may not be sure what we mean by intrinsic extrinsic and that link to purpose and meaning so would you explain for yeah Yeah, no, I actually have a little bit of a wrinkle on on that. So, I mean, so from the research, you know, it's from self-determination theory. It's one of the most, you know, researched, well-documented theories on the psychology of motivation. Picture, I kind of like to picture intrinsic versus extrinsic energy uh, as energy. So if motivation is the energy we use to achieve goals, 
Uh, extrinsic motivation comes from outside the self. It's either a carrot or a stick, right? The reason that we are using energy is because we either want the reward or we're avoiding a punishment for that thing, you know? So it's like, if you only go to a job to get money or to not get fired, if it's only incentives that get you to do something, that is pure extrinsic motivation, right? On the other end, um, you, so like when I try to get my kid to eat broccoli and I say, if you eat broccoli, uh, you'll get dessert, right? That is pure extrinsic motivation because there's no way he would eat the broccoli if I didn't give him the dessert. On the other, all the way on the other end of the spectrum is intrinsic motivation where it's just like, you just do it because you enjoy the process of doing it. Eating chocolate is intrinsically motivating. For a lot of students, watching Netflix is intrinsically motivating. You do it. And so um, purpose is actually different, though, than just pure intrinsic motivation, where because um, intrinsic motivation is it's really you do it because you love the act of doing it. And so a lot of people who are purposeful, doctors, uh, climate researchers, a lot of this, a lot of what they do is not actually intrinsically motivating. Like the process itself is not actually that fun for them, but they have something, a higher sense. They're tapping into something more just than the actual like part of it where they enjoy the process. They, they're tapping into, well, this is good for people beyond me. Doing this is going to reinforce an identity that I really care about. So it's, it, it, it plays a part, but it, it's not the whole it's not the whole picture when it comes to it. Does that make sense? Or? Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah. And it sort of reminds me of uh, Nietzsche's quote, right? Which is like, he who who has a, a strong why can withstand any how. Yes, exactly. Right? So what mm. I heard you say is that if you've got a very clear, if you live for, for like if you have a, a big why to live for, then even if the challenge, the, the situation is challenging, or even some of the activities that you have to do are not as enjoyable, you're not stepping away from it. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, and so, yeah, and no, it's exactly that. And with purpose, sometimes it changes our relationship with hard things. So sometimes we look for hard things to do, because it is a, it signifies our commitment to this purposeful thing. So it's like a purpose can change your entire relationship with struggle. You know, when you, when you have a clear sense of purpose in what you're doing and you're, and you're experiencing challenge or adversity, when you say, why am I experiencing this adversity? People with a sense of purpose say, well, this, this is a sign that I'm on the, I'm going in the right direction. And, and it must mean that I'm doing something really, really important. And that's why I got to keep going for it. So we're getting very high level with this. <laughs> and this is really good. And so then in terms of the fitting in with the challenge so that, the you know, as human beings, we try and avoid pain or yep. we seek pleasure, right? So you're talking about Netflix. You mm -hmm. know, I'll, I'll watch Netflix because I enjoy that, but that might not get me the what I, I, I want to achieve as a doctor. For example, if I sit binge watching Netflix, that's not quite... Um, gonna get me there so what I love with what I'm hearing you say or talk about is it fits in really well with a lot of the conversations around um, the inability to cope with challenges that sometimes people believe young people have yeah um, you know uh, I don't know if it's the same in in the US but I think in the UK often people sort of I hate this expression, I, I don't believe in it, but it's just sort of they call our young people and children snowflakes, right? Because mm -hmm. of their inability to cope with the challenges and the ups of, uh, and down of life. Mm -hmm. But correct me if I've, I've heard you wrong, well, it's like my subjectivity on what you said, but I just almost hear you say that actually people with a purpose will be able to withstand those challenges, right? And to and to cope with their struggles more. Yeah, and, and, no, and I agree. And you know, it's interesting. It's, um, where do I go with, yeah. Yeah, the whole, we, we have developed a, you know, we call young people snowflakes and like we say, oh, they can't handle anything. But one, um, you know, one, young people today 
are actually working harder. They're getting better grades. They're going to university at higher rates. Like this is still the most well-educated, hardest working by every single metric you can look out there in young people. Um, but then we say, you know, this idea of like dealing with emotions or snowflakes, it's like, what they're really dealing with is meaninglessness, you know, because they're still working as hard as ever before, but then we haven't given them a reason to be working hard. Like 10, 15, 20 years ago, going to university was a rite of passage. It's something that people actually wanted to do because it felt like this transformation from a young person into an adult. And it felt like this opportunity to explore and to find out who you wanted to become and what you wanted to do in the world. Now university is just a series of check boxes where it's just like, you have to go, you check it off. A lot of young people today don't think that the actual experience and of itself of university is the valuable thing. They think just finishing and getting the degree and being able to say, I graduated from X, Y, and Z is most helpful. And so they don't see the purpose in what they're doing. And, you know, so like, think about exercise again, when we're running again, your legs start to feel, your legs start to hurt. If you have a purpose in running, it changes your relationship with it. You're like, oh, my legs are hurting. That means I'm growing. That means I'm getting stronger. But if you were to be sitting on your couch and you just somehow felt your legs cramping up and they were hurting for no reason, you would go crazy because you're like, what? And you'd, you'd be really, really worried. And so, you know, when we when we have a noble cause, people are willing to do immense sacrifices in the name of that cause. And we just are not giving young people the opportunity to like he hear for themselves what they feel called to do. And so how do we do that? How do we help our children um, find that cause? Because that, again, that fits in so well with my research in the sense that, you know, I really believe that the teenage years are all about discovering who you are. So I talk about being, you know, tree, shrub, plant, flower in these gardens called life. Yes. And finding out what our fragrance is so mm -hmm. that we can then offer that fragrance within that the, the, the amazing sort of biodiversity, right? Yes. So how do we empower our young people to discover their that noble cause, that mm -hmm. sort of, you know, that that meaningfulness, the the purpose? Because yeah. to me it sounds like very often they just go, you know, it's it's worth it's things like you know meaningfulness and passion and purpose sometimes there's such big words that yep. people don't don't sort of like know what that means exactly okay so let's go into how to actually break it down and how to actually do it and then i also want to talk about how the systems we've created are the biggest barriers to actually doing the work so you know okay so purpose again living a life that's personally meaningful and contributes to the world beyond the self quick aside that contribution doesn't need to be some huge thing like solving climate change, solving cancer. It can be very, very little things like providing for my family, being a good friend. Any, just if you think whatever you do can contribute even in the tiniest way meets the definition of purpose. So the challenge of purpose is you have to know what's personally meaningful to you. You have to know what type of contribution you wanna make. And you have to know how to actually pursue that in the world. And that's the most difficult part. And so Bell, in her research, we've identified these four elements of purpose that if you can, if you can locate these elements of purpose, this will lead you to in the direction of purpose. And those elements are using the strengths that make you feel like your best self. It's developing, learning, and mastering skills that you're really motivated, uh, mo motivated to learn. It's living life aligned with your core values. So it's like making micro decisions on a day-to-day -day basis that feel attuned to your core values. And it's meeting needs in the world that you care about. And so the biggest challenge with that is, again, people need to know what the strengths are that they want, feel their best selves, the skills they want to develop, the core values they want to stand for, and the needs in the world that they want to meet. And so the work is helping students to identify those four elements of purpose and then figuring out how they can pursue those things in school, in vocation, and in life. And it's, and it's that is really at the heart of our work. 
Amazing. So two things popped up for me as you were talking. The first one is I would love us, love us to explore, you know, how do I know what my strengths are and my yes. skills are and like my what my values are and and what my the, the world needs. Like how yeah. do we help people identify that? And then um there was another point I wanted to say to to mention. I can't remember. Maybe it'll come back to me. Um, yeah, let's let's go with that first. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> So it's a great question. It's a great, great question. And the way we do it is we've created a shared language of purpose. So for each of these elements of purpose, we have an entire full spectrum framework that identifies, these are all universal themes where if you look anywhere, people have been talking about these things for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So what we do, the difference that we do there's a lot of quizzes out there, personality tests that you can be taking, right? What those do though, is they ask you about frequency of behavior. So if you're gonna go take a, a quiz on strengths, they're gonna ask you about how often you do specific uh, behaviors, and then they're gonna link that to strengths that you have. The problem is, is that sometimes we're not in a, you know, if we really, if justice is really one of our strengths, we might not be in a position of privilege or power where we can actually, act on that strength a lot of the time. So what we do is we do a lot of work on aspirational. What are the strengths that you feel like make you your best self now? And what are the strengths that you want in the future to be striving towards using? Um, so one, it's asking these questions. And, and I can go deeper into the questions, but we have this shared language where we can present to you, you know, virtues in action here, all the strengths that have been out there. We have these universal human skills. We have, you know, there's global world values that we're pulling from in the research. And here are a big framework of needs in the world. And it's just presenting this language to students and people and being, and asking them, you know, and taking them through some activities to be like, just pick from these strengths that you feel make you your best self. Um, and I can go deeper, but let's go there. Yeah, that's kind of, that's basically, we ask them, provide them the language and then give them the space to articulate based on based on the shared language of purpose. Wonderful. And so can you give me an example of what that would look like if you were working with someone in particular? How would you specifically get them to look at each one of those and, and to explore that language? Yeah, so, you know, let's take universal human skills as one, right? And if a strength is... If a strength is how you do something, a universal human skill is what you are actually doing, right? And so there's technical skills like engineering and computer science. These are very domain specific skills that people have. But when you look at the research on 21st century skills, labor skills, enduring skills, there's basically only three clusters of skills that we have. There's what we call creator skills. And these are skills where mostly your focus is, is on using your mind, creativity, problem solving, analytical thinking, right? There's this whole cluster around creator skills. Then there are facilitator skills. So interpersonal skills, communication, collaboration, emotional intelligence, really skills focused on engaging with other people. And then we have what's called driver skills, which are really around self-regulation and self-management skills. And these are really around time management, organization, attention to detail. And a way to think about it is that, you know, if creators have great ideas, right, for a new business, Facilitators are the people who are making sure people are organized and, and all rowing in the same directions. And drivers are the people who create systems and processes to make sure those ideas are getting turned into goals and are tangible, right? And so we present those concepts and we have the skill. Well, I'll say to you, from these, typically, typically people have a primary skill set and then a secondary. So I'm just wondering. Are you a creator, facilitator, driver? Like which two of the three resonate with you, would you say? I think I think probably facilitator first. So mm -hmm. I love the connection with, with people and <laughs> like doing this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and possibly like creator. I love like like I I, I always get loads of ideas. Probably the driver making it happen is probably my least mm -hmm. <laughs> favorite. 
So, so you're what we would call a facilitator creator, right? So you love to engage with people and get them understanding and behind and motivated by big ideas, you know? <laughs> and that's like, that is, by the way, these universal human skills that I've been talking about are not only the most durable in the face of automation and technological disruption, there's research by David Deming out of uh, Harvard University that has shown these three skill sets are the most in demand in, in every single sector there are. And so a question, you know, if we were, if I was doing this work with you, it's like, okay, you need to find something, a role where it's like people oriented first, right? Where you're more, and, and then if it's around people and ideas, it would be some sort of like human management or, you know, some sort of ideas, think tank policy, but it just, I don't know, what can, what, what do you tell me? What can you do with this information or does it feel helpful to be able to clarify that? Yeah, yeah, no, it's so really helpful because then it just makes me want, well, then it's like, okay, and how does that fit in with like, with those skills? What about strength? How is that different from, from the main skills you, you, you describe? Yep. How does that fit in with, with what you've just described? Yeah, so it would be like, so these skills are what you're actually doing, right? You'd really want to be working on skills where you're collaborating with people, you're doing a lot of communication, you're getting to translate ideas and go through. That is the what of actually how you're doing it. But, you know, we really draw on strengths or how we show up. It's like, it's, it's the method by which we do those things. Mm -hmm. so, so if you are a facilitator, right? We really draw upon, you know, the virtues in action, Martin Seligman's character strengths, right? And to break it down, there's really, you know, there again, there's strengths of mind, strengths of heart, and strengths of spirit, right? And so for you, it would be when I'm facilitating, when I'm engaging in people, what are the actual strengths that I want to be using when I'm engaging with them? Is it, you know, is it zest? Do I want to be like super high energy and really inspirational and fun? I'm pretty high energy. So I think I have some zest or do you want to do it from a strength of wisdom where you, you know, where you're creating space and you're creating perspective or is it justice where it's like, you know, so there's like, it's kind of about like the flavor because every facilitator is different. And so that's kind of the flavor of how you do, how you are going about using your skills. Amazing. And so how would you help someone like you're saying you're quite you're a bit high edge energy and you're more zest? How yeah. would someone know what their, their, their strengths their, are? Yeah, strengths are. Yeah. So we do well, so one, anyone right now could go to the V like look up VIA strengths quiz and they could go take a quiz. Again, that's gonna ask you about your that's gonna ask you about your tendencies. But like, go look at those 24 strengths and then just pick three of them, you know, and pick the three that are, which strength feels essential to you as a person. Like you couldn't be described without this strength, which one feels effortless to you where it's really easy and which one feels essential. Um, but what we do is we create strength interviews for people to do. We have these structured interviews where you can go interview a stranger or someone, you know, asking these questions because two out of three people are strengths blind. They actually don't know that the strengths that they are exhibiting on a day-to-day -day basis. So you have to engage with other people asking these questions. And so we do this thing where people will identify the strengths that they feel like make them best selves. They'll have an interaction with someone else. And then that person will be like, these are the strengths I see that you're using. And they're almost never the same strengths. And it opens up this really beautiful dialogue about how you see yourself versus other people, but um, I'll just say, you know, the magic in this is not the answer. It's actually the question, you know, just getting people to be like, what are the strengths and getting them to explore? Like the more you think about these things, the more purposeful life becomes. So yeah, amazing. Yeah. And so what's then the link with values? Because you, for example, you talked about justice, right? Yep. And so to me, values, so one of my big values is integrity. Mm -hmm. I, that is like probably the, I try and, and live with that, like mm -hmm. showing up with integrity. Um, so 
and and you know my journey thus far has been very much to bring my values to the surface because I think before my values were very deep down and I didn't know what they were and yep. so, for example I was a workaholic I got my kick out of work um but because I wasn't conscious about that I spent so much time in work and working and that's not where I want so I've re reevaluated things and shifted things yeah 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 and how does that fit in with you know what how, what can you tell the listeners that would sort of help them understand what values are compared to those strengths and skills yeah well okay I'm going to come back to ask you a question on yours, but yeah. So like in, cause we wrote this book, how to navigate life and you're just taking us through every single chapter here, which is great. So it's basically in order, which is nice. So the values chapter was by far the hardest chapter to write because when you really think about it, we talk about values all the time, but then when you really, when I really tried to pinpoint, I'm like, what? is a value. And it's really hard to explain what a a value is. And we've realized um, you can know what a value is. So values are only valuable in how scarce they are. So like, let's take integrity as one. So a value is only a value if we are willing to sacrifice in the name of that value, right? And so if we're not willing to make a sacrifice in the name of integrity or growth or whatever it is, it's not actually a value for ours, you know, because values are only valuable because they're scarce. And so there's research we can get into it if you want on like universal human values. Um, but okay, so yeah, let's, so there's, there is research by Dr. Shalom Schwartz out of Israeli University where he studies values from 80 different cultures all across the world, 32 different languages, asking people from all these different communities what's important to them. And he's found about 19 universal human values that everyone says is important to them. But what happens is that they're on this spectrum. So one spectrum is what they call, um, in there's it's individualism versus collectivism. So really picture an x-axis. And on one end is individualism, the other end of, is collectivism. And essentially, to really, really simplify it, on one end, do you believe, you know, when I win, the group wins, meaning the better I do as an individual, the better the group will do? Or do you believe when we win, I win? So the better the group does, the better I'm going to do. So I'm going to put the group's needs before my own. So that's one spectrum we're all on somewhere. Where do you feel like you fall on that spectrum for yourself? Mm, I don't know. Um... It can be different depending on like- I think I was much more individualistic for sure three years, four years ago than I I am now. So one thing I I also noted, I remember I wanted that fits in with what you've just described, is this difference between individual needs and getting my individual needs met versus being of service to others. So- actually what I've discovered which is quite counterintuitive in terms of flourishing is that very often when we're in survival we focus on me myself and I right navel gazing yep and actually all it takes is to just look up and see how that awe and like you know then noticing how big the world is and how little we are and it just shifts that thing right yes so no exactly yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. That was no, 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 no. So, so what, what I, what I was gonna say is like, how does that fit in in terms of, of the, what you were saying in terms of the. Yeah, well, so one, in higher education, a lot of research by um, Nicole Stevens at a Northwestern University, institutes of higher education, you ask leaders, what are your values? overwhelmingly individualistic value, core values. Individual, we are, we are developing leaders who are gonna go out and change the world, right? So we've just, there, and I'm, I am agnostic, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm just saying you were in a system that was really valuing individualism and then it was creating systems that incentivized that individualism. And a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time, individual can come from a scarcity mindset, right? Where there is not enough to go around, you're competing with your peers to make sure that, you know, if life is this hyper-competitive zero-sum competition, 
I need to make sure that I'm doing well so I can eat, right? And so when you're in a, you know, I need to make sure I'm getting enough grant money, you know, <laughs> publishing enough papers. I need to make sure that I am like high enough up on the food chain academically so that I can get my own needs met. And so that was the water you were swimming in, right? What's interesting is that low-income first-gen students overwhelmingly come into higher ed with collectivist values. They're coming from communities that are really more collectivist. And there's research showing that when there's this values mismatch between this individualism versus collectivism, it caused this psychological stress that actually hurts academic performance, sense of belonging, and is a really big driver of why students aren't being successful just because they have different values. So, mm, and that's sort of like that what I would call what I've noticed in in me. So when something's jarring, very often it's because the environment is like I call that value trampling. Like they yes. see that people are stepping all over things that really matter to me, and they make yes. me describe it as like the heckle go go up, and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> I'm I'm writing down value trampling because that is amazing. But you you know it's really it's really interesting about values is that there are hitting there are hidden operating system for how we make decisions. And usually we're not aware of them at all. We're o- we only become aware of them when they get trampled on. When our values are violated, that's when we realize what's really valuable to us. So I'm sorry that that happened to you, but it's also like it, yeah, and so Right. But so that is another one where it's like, I don't know, does that framework um, help paint the picture of your academic experience at all? Yeah, or? completely. And the fact that actually this this individual, you know, we, we the system itself is actually fostered for us to be individualistic and to be and, and it's about competition and it's about like, you know, survival of the fittest etc right so we are encouraged I mean I I cringe now when I think about it yeah I'm so driven about like my change in education but actually I really thought that I ego would sort it out and and now I laugh and I'm like oh my god this is so embarrassing but that's the reality is because in that system that's what we encourage to do and and actually if you think in terms of you know, Ubuntu and that in Africa, their approach is so different, right? Because they just, you know, it's about group and it's about the making sure that, you know, that's what you were describing. The, you know, if the group wins, then, you know, everybody wins. Yep. And I guess I'm leaning, you know, go back to your question. I think I'm slowly leaning towards that yeah yeah Uh, and just an aside for the people listening like I have individualistic core values I'm from the United States like I we are not saying individual core values are bad there's actually a time and place for individualistic core values you know when you have limited resources or when you do actually have scarcity it can be very good for the group to it's a way for the group to efficiently allocate resources. So I'm just thinking now, you know, when the race for the COVID-19 vaccine was on, you know, you actually wanted individualists there who were really going to compete and who wanted to win that race because it really, it spurned on innovation and competition and it optimized performance. So there's a place for it, but there's a place for all of these values. So just, um, I love that because it goes back to what I often say. It's like it's always a delicate dance, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not about black and white and it's not about like, you know, it's all about shades of grays. And sometimes we are more individualistic, like you were saying, than than all focused on the group. So I love how you you highlighted that because I think it's really true. It's so easy to just become very... Uh, Cartesian dualistic and just going it's either that's like individualistic yes. one end or, or or collective on the other when yes. in fact it's a messy shade of gray right well we re- yeah we, we've come to this place of it's um psycho diversity right it's like you really do want a thriving ecosystem everyone has a role to play including all of these values and so there is the the y spectrum on the values so if we have the x individual collectivism the y axis is this spectrum between growth and stability and it's really about 
the very simple way to figure out where you are is in general, do you see change as an opportunity to make things better? Or do you see change as a threat to make things worse? And we're all on this spectrum right here, but that's really about like stability and security versus growth and which one we're prioritizing. Does one come to mind with you or? Yeah, I, I love change and, <laughs> and challenges. Yeah, I think for me, there are opportunities for growth and development. So, yeah. And it's like, I see them as a constant. It's like, yeah, these conversations we're having, we literally have live wired and change me anyway. So yeah. it's like, it's a, <laughs> that's how I view it. So for me, it's like, it's not a question of, is change happening it, it, or is it you know I have to go through change it's just like it is happening it's possible right. <laughs> yeah. and, and look what and, and this is a values thing right about what you look what you did you had the you had the very stable job well as stable as it could be in academia right and you stepped away from it right and so that was values in action because you literally were prioritizing growth over stability you know mm-hmm. um and so that that is in action, right? And so we do and I have love that. Thank you. Sorry, I'm just sorry yeah, to yeah. interrupt you, Tim. But actually, I was talking to my friend Joe um, lunchtime, and I was saying actually, what's really interesting is a lot of my colleagues couldn't understand why I did at the time I didn't even have a plan. So I was like. I know I can't stay in this job because my values, who I am right now as an individual, are not aligned with this. So I don't believe all students should be going to university, for example. So I can't promote this idea that, yeah, you all go to Holy Grail that a university is. And right. so therefore I can't work for an organization this you know not that I don't like university I think university is great but I don't think it's for every single student um and so but a lot of my colleagues you've given me an an explanation as to why some of my colleagues went you were like really like what's going on are you mad and they really looked at me like I was some like and, and I made some of them really uncomfortable. So they walked away from me when we were having a conversation. And I think that's probably because they're much more like you were describing on stability, right? Yeah. And so that makes you put, put up or accept maybe some things. Yes. Because is that what you mean by the, by the difference? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's interesting with growth and stability is um, stability often comes from an absence. So the the less stability and security you feel like you have, the more you value it. And and but growth comes from the presence of it. So it's like the more you experience mastery, wisdom, adventure, you know, the more you experience growth, the more you tend to value it. And so for a lot of people, it's 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 a value judgment in a way where it's like there's no right answer here you know and so what i love about this values work is you can be like i totally see stability and security is the most important thing to you for me personally it's like i need individual growth i need to feel like i'm going out and continuing to advance and progress in the way that aligns with my core values and what we found is that so these conflicts happen all the time. So just to get into it, so you, that we have these four value archetypes based on this matrix. You're growth-oriented and collectivist. You're what we call a builder. And so you have universe, universalism is like the core values. So you love work, you love changing groups for the better. This is what our archetype would say. You love changing groups for the better. Um, And you love change because it's an opportunity to better serve every single person within that community. And so, and so that is, so the change comes from this way of making systems work better for every single person in it. Does that resonate with you or is that? 100%. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. (laughs) So, but okay. Opposite end of that. So picture you're in the upper left-hand corner, bottom right-hand corner are what, individualistic stability oriented we call those champions and so champions they they are they love competition they love competing they love pushing themselves to achieve as much as they can they also love stability and security because 
they love to know how the rules are, how things work so that they can optimize their own individual performance to be to like to be as successful as possible, right? They're like, they're going to understand how the game is played and they're going to optimize their behaviors to really, which is great in, in certain situations, right? Like in a lot of situations, you want peak performers who are great at optimization. Um, those two core values, remember these are on a circumplex. They're completely at odds with each other. Right. And so when you bump heads with the champions, you're going to bump heads because you all completely value different things. Has that, uh, yeah, how does that? Yeah, 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 yes, absolutely. And I was going to say to you, so do, do these change over time? Because I just feel like the, yes. the person I am and the way I approach things. So perhaps before I was much more worried about that status and that, you know, sort of like authority and, and uh, you know, almost like power that I was getting through the job. But that's because I was almost like that scarcity, that sort yep. of worried that, well, if I don't get the job, then it mean, what does it mean about me as a human being? Right. And you, it's to, once you, yes. So we call it the recursive process. So one it's, um, well, these not their context and domain specific too. So I can have, I can have work values that are completely different than my home values where, you know, I can be very individualist or collectivist and then have it change. But again, you know, the more we pursue growth, um, it's at the expense of stability and security. And so there will come a point where it's like, we've been growing for so much. And we're like, you know, what sounds nice right now, a little bit of stability and security, and it will like bend us back. And then on the other end, it's like, you had it. You were like, I've reached this level of stability and security that's been met for me. But now it's like, I, because I have so much of it, you know, it's like, you're full, you've satiated that need. And so then you start going to growth. And so it's, to us, it's always about checking in on where we're at and what's needed for us given different seasons of our life, you know? And the ebb and flow of life, right? There's sort of that. that yeah, so there's, we, we view it as circular. So there's two more archetypes for anyone who's really taking notes here or like wants to know. So the upper right-hand corner, which is individualistic growth oriented, that's what we call the trailblazer. And so these are people who are individualistic, but they love working outside of traditional systems. They love creating things that have never been created before. You know, like they like doing their own thing. They're all about autonomy of freedom and thought. They don't want anyone else telling them what they can do. They want to be unimpeded by all of that, but so that they can have their own goals. I'm that is my archetype. A lot of it is like the trailblazer going my own way. And then the final one, the collectivist stability oriented is what we call the guardian. And they're all about like protecting and preserving what's tried and true. So they're all about the community, but they love ritual and tradition and the history of it. And they're really about maintaining, you know, and preserving that. And so um, but you need all of them, essentially, in any organization. Yeah, because it's just also about that beautiful biodiversity, right, that we just all need. Amazing. And what about needs, then? How does that fit in with, like, everything we've explored so far and yeah. what the world needs? Like, how do we make it then connect? Yep. Yeah, so if, like, so using your strengths, gaining new skills, doing it in a way that aligns with your value archetype, that all, like anytime you experience those things, it's personally meaningful to you, right? But the last part, purpose is about contributing to the world beyond the self. And so this meeting needs in the world is about, it's not all about you. It's about using your strengths, gaining new skills, living and aligned in a way with your values to contribute to the world. Um, and so we have these five universal human needs that need to be met. We all have physical needs. We have psychological needs. We have community needs. We have, um, we have community needs, societal needs, and then environmental needs. And so these are like concentric circles that get bigger on. And so basically, you know, what we're talking about here is pro-social intentions, right? And so there's a lot of research on the more pro-social people are, which is just an academic way of saying they genuinely want to help other people. You live longer, you're more happy with your life, you're more purposeful, but we've realized. So a lot of time when people talk about purpose, they say, oh, go do climate change, solve cancer, you know, go take on, 
the world's biggest challenges. The, the problem with that is that they don't feel personally meaningful to us a lot of the time. You know, you have to have a personal connection to the problems you want to be solving. And so what we've realized is that you have to look at each of these needs in the world and you have to say, pro-sociality comes from either extreme, um, it comes from advantages or adversity, funny enough. So, you know, when our needs have been met and we've recognized that we have an advantage and an advantage in our view is anything that makes your life easier, you know? So if we have a psychological need for clothing, food, security, safe shelter, if that need's been met for me, that is an advantage. And so if I have gratitude for that advantage, it gets me thinking about how can I pay that forward to other people who don't have that. Um, and then on the other end, if that need has not been met, that's an adversity. And there's really, really compelling research showing that when people go through adversity and, it, and it's not an ongoing enduring one, but it's one that there's, it's time bound. They have time to process it and make meaning of it. A lot of the time, what happens is they make meaning of in a way where they want to go help other people who have been through something similar. And so it's really thinking about what are the advantages and adversity in my life and how is that informing the impact that I want to be having? And I guess it's like the, the a little bit like the wounded healers, right? Mm -hmm. The people who go and then serve because they've they've experienced the challenges and they've learned and developed the resources and the skills, and so they feel they can share with others. Is that what you? Yeah, yeah. And so there's really wild research by um called uh, into post traumatic growth by um, Tadeshi and Calhoun. These are two professors out of UNC. And they found that when people go through a traumatic event, what more often than not, we've all heard of PTSD, but a lot of time people experience post-traumatic growth, which means they're not grateful for the bad event happening. Like if they could take it back, they would, but they can also recognize that in response and overcoming that or dealing with it, they themselves have grown in a way that has been beneficial to them. And what's interesting, they have these specific elements of post-traumatic growth. And what do people say when they experience post-traumatic growth? I have, I'm, life is a lot more fragile than I realize, but I'm a lot stronger than I realize. Meaning that they, they recognize strengths that they didn't know they had. Uh, a lot of the times when they go through PTA uh, post-traumatic growth, they say, oh, it's opened up new avenues for me to grow as a person. To, and so which it opens up their eyes to new skills that they want to develop. Another thing they say, it's made me realize what's really important in life, meaning it's reoriented them to their core values, right? And the final thing they say is that they feel a sense of transcendence and awe, and they feel connected to something bigger than themselves, which makes them pro-social. So the wild part is that post-traumatic growth reinforces all these other elements of purpose in a, in a really, I, I didn't go in expecting to see that in the research, but then it's just like, it mapped on really cleanly to these other elements of purpose. Amazing. And, and I'll give you an example. So last year when I started my career break, um, you know, after feeling like a squeezed lemon and I said to my boss, I can't give to anybody else. I just, I'm on empty. Um, and I can't manage 13 members of staff and 800 students, so I need time out. Um, you know, did that, and I actually said to my boss, I'm not giving you the skin and the pips with it, so you're not having all of him, all of all of it. Right. Um, but that, what happened is on the first day of my career break, my father-in-law passed away mm. after five years of being ill, and that literally was a massive uh shift in terms of oh my goodness like he was describing jolting me out of you're working like a lunatic that's all you do on this hamster wheel going going you know when when you go when time's up <laughs> on this beautiful blue planet as you Fabian what will you value like what will you what will you on your last day on this planet what will will you what have wanted to spend more time in the office or answering emails right and the fact that you don't have any pockets when you go right so mm -hmm. also like all this money and all the things that was mm -hmm. so that was a massive shift in terms of 
who I am now a year on for sure you know can I it's a beautiful example how can I ask you what did the processing of that look like were you talking it out were you thinking on lawn walks were you writing about it like what did the actual processing look like weirdly writing in on LinkedIn is my way to process <laughs> so yeah it's my it's my own selfish reflecting reflective way so yeah. I'm somebody who naturally journals anyway mm -hmm. so I'll meditate and then journal what comes up um, but I, so I did that and then I processed that through the writing, those stories and sharing them. So over the, the months I realized, you know, after I went through the, the pain of, you know, the grieving and the realizing the person you love, all of those things, I then really realized, my goodness, you're going to have to sort out your priorities here. Um, so, so yeah really good i mean it's a beautiful example and it's not silly to do it on linkedin because so you know we've gone on this wild tour all across the world of purpose and but when it boiled down to it the practice of purpose is really really simple it's the more we think about our lives in an intentional way the more likely we are to find purpose in them and so you know we we have yeah i'm we have this book, right? And so people want to know each chapter of the book is going through these elements, but we've boiled it down to four questions. And all Bell and I's work now, working with people, is helping them answer just four questions. Those four questions are, how do I want to be remembered? How do I want to grow as a person? What do I want to stand for? And what impact do I want to make? And now, and, and it is literally purpose work is providing space for people to ask those questions and then giving them the tools to answer it. And so for people, the easiest thing for people to do, you know, those are big, big questions. And like you, you run away and avoid those questions. You didn't Fabian, because like, you know, you got death staring in your face. Right. And so that's where we go with it. And so, um, yeah, so that if for anyone listening here, it's really asking yourselves those questions. And then our work is about giving people a psychological, helping people build psychologically safe place to grapple with them, giving them like assessments that we have to help them answer. But ultimately it's about thinking, talking, writing and sharing about it. And so it's not surprising at all to me that LinkedIn was like this coping mechanism that helped you clarify what's most important. Um, does that, yeah, I'm curious your thoughts. Amazing, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. And it's so, it's such a beautiful, like almost round up of like our journey thus far, right? Yeah. Um, so when I, when I, I, I think it's really beautiful and I really hope that we can have more conversations because I really love your work and, um, and I'll, I'll put the link so people can go and buy your book and get in touch with you so they can do some work with you if they want to and things. Um, there's two last questions I have for you, if I may. Yeah. The first one is I always ask and now ask my guests, um, you know, if people are interested in the work that you're doing and what we've discussed, uh, besides, you know, your, your book, obviously, that people need to go and buy and, and read, um, are there any must-reads, like, books that you would recommend them to, to go and explore? Yeah, I mean, it's an old one, but um, yeah, Path to Purpose by Bill Damon, you know, he's really is a great one. It, that, and that's really about the research on purpose. And he does moral education in a really, really cool way. Um, something more contemporary is um, The Power of Meaning by Emily Esfahani Smith. That really in, informed um, a lot of our work at the same time. And so I'm just trying to think, it really depends on which books we're talking. And then, oh, um, anything by Timothy Wilson is fantastic. He's this researcher at a University of Virginia. But um, I think like all the people I've mentioned have written really beautiful stuff here as well. But those are like the top three, I'd say have been really, really influential um, in my journey. And then, yeah, I'd leave it at that. Amazing. And I'll make sure that I put those links. And then the final question, is um you know if there was one thing you would want our listeners to take away from this conversation we've had what would it be for you mm, i would say 
um, the inscription, what my parents told me, and then what I dedicated to my kids was um, trust yourself to figure it out. Meaning like we've built all these systems where externally we're telling everyone what they need to be doing and how they need to be doing it. But the more you can intentionally listen to yourselves and listen to what, what are the strengths? Where do I want to grow? What do I feel called to do? The more you can listen to yourself and tune to that, I would just say, if you're thinking about going in a direction and you can say, can you use your strengths in this direction? And for you, Fabian, on your new journey, you know, on this seeker's journey that you're on, can you use your strengths in what you're doing? Are you going to learn and grow in a way that feels meaningful to you? Are you doing it in a way with aligns with your core values? And do you feel like you are, have this intention to contribute to the world in a meaningful way? If you're like, and I'm seeing the nodding, so that is a yes there. Like you are headed in the right direction, even if you have no idea where you're actually going or where you're going to end up. And I will have to do a part two about how all the systems, you know, it's like all of our system. And this, the final thing I will say, if you're struggling with this work, it's because we have designed education systems, places of work, societal systems that has crowded out this work entirely. Like if you don't feel like you can use your strengths or gain new skills or do none of this stuff feels applicable, that is because of the systems that we're in. So a lot of our work now is not only doing this for individuals, but really going in and how can we change systems to work in different ways that allows people to do more of this thoughtful work. So if you're struggling with it, it's not your fault. Amazing. And yes to part two, because there's so many more questions I want to ask you. So, sure. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tim. This has been a joy, Fabian. So yeah, thank you thank so much you. for having me. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please don't hesitate to get in touch with me with any comments or questions you may have. You can find me on Twitter at Flourishing HE or on LinkedIn at Fabian Vales. Please also like this podcast as it's helping me promote it and don't hesitate to share widely with your friends and family. Thank you so much for listening and for your support.